0: Hey, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and we talk all the time on here about representation. Representation mostly in terms of the increases we've seen of queer and trans people on screen, but I also think about representation in terms of one's background, their own personal history. For example, before Alexandra Billings became the actress you've seen in shows like Transparent and on Broadway starring as Madame Morrible and Wicked, before all that, She was a sex worker, a drug addict, she was homeless for a time, she's also trans and living with HIV. And I say all that because I think the assumption would be that someone with that kind of history could not have the career that she has had. Historically, we as a society have not lifted up people like that. We don't cast them, we don't give them awards, and so I love that that is beginning to change. We are actively changing what kind of future is possible for our community. And today, Alexandra Billings is here to talk about that. We talk about her extraordinary and unlikely career, and also her new book that's a memoir and is out now that's called This Time For Me. And then before we get to it, there is a small reference to a suicide attempt, just a heads up there. And from The Advocate magazine in partnership with GLAAD, this is LGBTQ&A. So I first interviewed you back in 2017, and we actually were backstage in the LA LGBT Center before your one-woman show. Mm -hmm. And... You know, the list of performers who have given me chills when they sing is small, and you are on there.
1: Oh, bless your heart. Oh, my goodness. Well, that's very kind. Thank you, Jeffrey. That's very nice of you.
0: I mean that. And I don't just say that to gas you up. I say that because I was also surprised reading your book that when you got started performing in Chicago, you were not singing. You were primarily lip singing at that time, right?
1: Yeah. That's right. Yeah, I got, well, I've been lip syncing since I was seven. You know, that's sort of a thing. Like, I did that because I love it. That's why I'm so addicted to to the TikTok. Not only is lip syncing now acceptable, people are thrilled with other people lip syncing. So this has been a dream of mine since I can. And when I found out in my 20s that you could do it on stage and they would pay you for it, I thought, this is the greatest idea anybody's ever had about anything. So that's why I did it. I loved it.
0: And so you started performing in the early 80s in Chicago, and that's when you found this community of trans women and showgirls. Back then, was femininity something you were only performing on stage only, or were you also like going home and like going about your daily life?
1: Well, I began to, to when I was 16, 15 or 16, I have been dressing in my mother's clothes for years, ever since I can remember, literally ever since I can remember. And everything was sort of going great for the longest time until I started to go to school and people started to tell me how wrong that was. I actually didn't know. I was doing anything wrong until someone actually told me. And then I went, oh, I guess I should stop doing that. And then came the shame and the public humiliation and all of that trauma. So by the time I was in a teenager, by the time I was a teenager, I had been doing this secretly now for a long time. Because I knew it was a terrible thing to do. I didn't know why, but I knew it was terrible. So I'm decided that I should probably leave the planet. It's probably a good idea because I was causing so much harm. Everyone was so upset. My mother was upset, and my father was upset, and my friends were leaving me, and the bullies were just attacking me daily. It was just terrible. So I thought, what's well, probably best if I'm not here? So I cooked up a plan to take a whole bunch of pills from my mother's medicine cabinet and go in my bedroom, swallow all the pills, and die. You know, when you're a teenager, you know, everything is Valley of the Dolls. So I just thought I would die, I would just expire which is not true. However, I got the pills and it was three o'clock. There's a reason I know this is true still. There was three o'clock on Friday. My parents were at work and I went into my bedroom and I closed the door and I turned on the TV because I'm a TV baby. And there's the Phil Donahue show. He was Oprah Winfrey before Oprah Winfrey was Oprah Winfrey. And they have these three hookers on stage and they're talking to these prostitutes these female prostitutes but these women looked gorgeous they were so beautiful i couldn't believe how beautiful they were they were so shiny and sparkly and their earrings were fabulous and they just looked amazing phil and their audience started to ask them questions tomorrow was like i don't think they're hookers i I actually think i think they're strippers maybe they're strippers maybe they're just really fabulous funny smart stripper ladies and i'm sitting there this is absolutely true sitting there on the, the edge of my bed holding these pills watching this tv show so weird my life is. and then they ask more questions and they one woman in the back i'll never forget this and now mind you this was 1978 or nine some woman in the back stands up and goes what bathroom do you use and i thought strippers have 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 their own bathroom i did not know that i was not aware of that And something hit me, and I don't know what it was, but I stood there looking at these three women. And I said, out loud, I said, oh, there I am. There I am. And these three women were trans women. They worked at the Baton. And strangely, years later, those three women became part of my chosen family. I worked with all three of them. One of them was Chili Pepper. It's very, very famous in the Chicago drag scene still to this day, it's sort of a legend, really. And one of the women in in the audience asked Chili, what are you, a man or a woman? And Chili said, Mary, I'm a showgirl. And I went, oh, that's it. That's what I want to be when
0: I grow up. And I did. And so these these showgirls that we're talking about, you describe them in the book as your first great teachers, were they teaching you things about gender or about just life in general?
1: Yes and yes. If you talk to trans women who have transitioned later in their life, the one thing they miss is having other trans women around go, ooh, don't do that. Or, you know, here's how you get, listen, we're going to go to the 7-Eleven all together in a big trans group. And so nobody gets hit. So, you know, you miss all that. And I found them in my 20s. I grew up, I really was raised by drag queens and trans women. That's, where I was, that's who raised me. My parents gave me a couple of things, but I got all of my survival skills from my trans family. All of
0: them. To this day, I still use them. What were some of those skills? Um,
1: I know exactly where my line is, meaning I know exactly how much you can say to me, how you can treat me, and how you will speak to me before I will stop you. And I will stop you. And I don't have to put my hands on you. I I know how to stop you. I was also taught by these women mindfulness, meaning I know how to assimilate in any situation. Really. There really isn't a situation where I can't, even if it means shut up and listen, where I can't go, oh, I can survive this. I, I may not like it, but I know I can survive it.
0: You also write that being trans in the 80s, that you had two choices in your life. You could lip sync, like perform in a club, you could lip sync, or you could fuck. And you say you did both really well. True. And with sex work, you write that before it fell apart and became an awful, degrading, and insidious nightmare, it was actually kind of funny. So what was funny about sex work?
1: Well, because most of the time, first of all, I didn't have a lot of sex.
0: So, sorry, did you say did or didn't? I did not. Oh, did not, okay.
1: And that's true of most sex workers, strangely. They think that, you know, when you see us on like LA Law or what are all those shows that that have hookers on them? You know, what are those crime shows are? It's not like that. It's kind of like that, but it's not like that at all. I used to have a guy that used to come to my house and clean my bathroom on his hands and knees, dressed as a French maid holding a toothbrush. And the only thing I had to do was come in occasionally and berate him with foul language. He paid me $2,000. That's a ton of money. To clean my bathroom. I mean, so I used to think to myself, this can't be, this can't be that easy. It can't possibly.
0: Wait, so a man cleaning your bathroom, though, um, to, the, we're classifying that under the sex work umbrella because to him, was that sexually satisfying? Yes, apparently. Wow. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And they, the thing about being a sexer, I know it really, it actually was. And that's what I mean. It was fabulous until it wasn't anymore. I think these men, they, because they, we have all agreed as as a country that the white men are supposed to save the world. They have all the answers. They run the country. They, you know, they're still the president. We still don't have a female president. It's, it's just, it's not, that's crazy. We can't do that yet. We're not ready. So because that's true, they look for any outlet Where they can just be either soft or frail or weak or not have to make any decisions or be told what to do. And so when you pay somebody for their time, you can do anything you want. And I think that's a lot of them. That's what they did.
0: And I also think that there's a way in which we talk about sex work today, and there's this like implication that it's only acceptable, you know, for survival only. And I still think it's necessary to say that you can choose sex work not for survival, and that's also okay. And it seemed like you were in more of that category.
1: Absolutely. I was. I always had another job, but I did yeah, I did it because I really liked it. I really liked it. Also. As I got to make more money, I had clients that took me to the most fabulous places. We went to the Playboy Club. We went to the Drake. We went to, you know, we went to really fabulous places. They bought me incredible meals. They were really good conversationalists. I had politicians for clients. I had writers. I had all different kinds of people. And so their friends were eclectic as well. So a lot of these dinner parties that I would go to, you know, there were some pretty fancy people there. And so it was fun sometimes.
0: And during this time, you were going by the name Shantae. When did that name stop feeling like a fit?
1: When I got cast in Vampire Lesbians, as soon as I got cast in Vampire Lesbians of Sodom, I knew that I didn't want to have that name, and it sounded like a stripper. And I—that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to. I considered myself a very serious artist, and I—I—I I, I said that that's not gonna. I don't want to see that on. You know, The Glass Menagerie starring Shantae. Like, what? Are you out of your tree?
0: (laughs) And this was The Vampire Lesbians of Sodom by Charles Bush. That was the first professional theater gig that you did. And from there, you went on to work all over Chicago, including at the Steppenwolf. That's one of the most respected theaters in the country. Can you talk about how your gender was treated? Because it seems like you being trans ended up being the focus of every show you were in. Well, yes, <laughs> it certainly was.
1: You know, this was a long time ago. This was 30 years ago, 20 something, 30 years ago. So it was a long time ago. And the fact that I was on the Steppenwolf stage, I was the first trans person ever on that stage. So the fact that that was happening was not lost on me. It's never lost on me. So I knew that I only had so much power. The first show, the first show, yeah, the first show I did was called Time to Burn, it was by Charles Mead. It was a great show. It was about, about a group of homeless people living underneath a city. And one of them was a transvestite. So I auditioned for it. And I, at the audition with Tina Landau directing, um, at the audition, I said to myself, okay, because I wasn't a transvestite, but I said, okay, don't say anything. Because you may not get it. And then, you know, they'll hire some, you know, man who will dress up as but I said, go after the role. You know, do your work and go after the role. So I did, and I got it. And when I got it, after I got it, I mean, now now that wouldn't happen. Now, even before I get something like that, I would say either yes or no. But back then, I didn't have a choice because we weren't seen anywhere. We weren't represented anywhere. So I just wanted to get the gig. So I got the gig, and then I turned to Chuck, uh, me, and I said, we have to change this. Anyone he went, what? I said, we have to change this. You have a shower scene where I get naked. I literally took a shower on stage every night, by the way, which I was fine to do. But I said, you have a transgender body at the time we were called transsexuals, but you have a trans body on stage that you are calling a transvestite. And that's, first of all, incorrect. And second of all, I can't stand behind that politically. We're in enough trouble. And- There's nothing wrong with being a transvestite. That's just not what I am. And I want to send a correct message. And immediately without hesitation, he went, oh, great. And fixed the script, changed words, changed dialogue, rewrote stuff. So that's when I said to myself, okay, Alex, before you can change the game, you have to play it.
0: That is an amazing response from this director. Extraordinary. Was that the common response you were met with or was that kind of the outlier in your experience
1: it really was a common there were a few instances where where that was not common but strangely if I could get in if I could get in there (laughs) once I got in the room as long as I feel I felt like as long as I do things from this place I'm at right now and I don't come in like you know what you're a big jerk and you're stupid you know as long as I don't start there that never gets anything accomplished, I don't think. doesn't work with me. I feel like if you have something to say, if you say it from a place of kindness or education, I absolutely want to hear what you have to say. And most people were receptive and still are.
0: You also write, though, that during this time, all of the reviews of your shows and your work, it all focused on your transness.
1: Yeah. They didn't care if I was good or bad. That didn't matter to them. But one of the reviews I got, I played... Madame Rose in Gypsy a hundred years ago. I was way too young, but a hundred years ago, I played Rose. I'd like to do it again now that I'm older. But what the review said, one of the main, I'm paraphrasing, but one of the main problems is Alexandra Billings' manly gait. So they commented on this idea they had. I mean, they never would have said that if I was a cis actress, no matter how I walked, they never would would have said it. It wouldn't have come up. It wouldn't have been an issue, but because they knew I was trans, I had a reputation in Chicago. I was out. I was, I was taking up an enormous amount of space. They got triggered. So even, even when they were commenting on my acting, like here's the problem with her acting, it was about my gender expression. In Chicago, there wasn't another that I knew of anyway, out trans actress, I didn't know, not one. It's not like I could even call, so it's not like I knew Candace at the time, and I could call her. Like, nobody. And Trace and I talk about, Trace Lisette and I talk about this all the time, because she was actually starting, like, around the same time I was. And I think Laverne was too, actually. That might be true. I don't, I don't really know. But we all around the same time started, and all three of us felt exactly the same, because we didn't know each other. So we all felt completely isolated and completely alone. So, i didn't have any comparison i didn't i had no idea what the hell i was doing
0: and during this time doing all these shows in chicago had you gotten sober by that point yes i was because in the book you write a lot about your drinking and you do more drugs than i knew existed frankly (laughs) 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 can i say that is that offensive
1: (laughs) no are you kidding takes a lot to offend me.
0: Okay. <laughs> At what point did your drinking and drugs become more than just recreation?
1: My drinking and drug use was never recreation. That was never true. Really? It was it was no. no. I didn't go to parties and like, you know, do a line of cocaine. Like that didn't happen to me. You know, I wasn't like one of those drug addicts. I my my addiction was a necessity. It was part of it, I ate I breathed oxygen, I had sex, and I did drugs. All with great reckless abandon. Like, nothing—there was nothing casual. I wasn't one of those partygoers. I didn't do that. I went home, I had a group of friends, and we did drugs for, like, days. Wow. And then I would work and do my thing, and then we'd do that again. It was very serious, my drug-taking.
0: I think you wrote that by 14 or 15, your drinking would qualify you for the Olympic Games. The quantity—
1: Oh god, I loved it. Are you kidding? I miss it. I really do. I don't miss it to the point of distraction. It doesn't it doesn't hold me prisoner anymore, but I do miss it. I, uh, you know, I was driving home tonight thinking about it. Today from class
0: thinking Really? About
1: it. Yeah, just thinking about it. It's not like, "Oh my god, I wish I could stick a needle in my arm." I think if you handed me a needle, I'd probably go, "Oh my god!" Like I'd probably freak out. Or if there was cocaine in front of me, I literally would, I don't would, I wouldn't know what to do. I would just go, that's hilarious. Are you out of your tree? Uh, But I do think about it. Yeah, I absolutely do.
0: I know that sobriety is not easy, but does it now feel easier?
1: It feels, well, remember I got sober and then I relapsed for almost a decade on pills which I had never taken before. I'd done all these drugs, but I'd never taken pills. And I wrenched my back in Chicago because everything's made of ice in Chicago. Everything. All the time, constantly. And I slipped and wrenched my back. I was in terrible pain. And I went to the doctor and I said, I'm in terrible pain. And he said, here, back in the day when you could write like, you know, a prescription for 90 Vicodin or something. He'd say, here, take these and you will feel fine. And I was like, well, okay. I really don't like the small pills, but okay. So I went home and I took one. said take one or two every blah blah hours for pain i took one and in about 10 minutes i was like i feel great and then i looked at the bottle and i went well it does say take one or two so i'll just take another one and by the time i was done i was up to between 10 to 14 pills a day and i had two doctors going at the same time simultaneously and i had a map this is another joke a map of every 24-hour Walgreens, CVS, and Rite Aid in the Chicago area. So I didn't mess around, is what I'm telling you. And so that happened. Then I got sober (laughs) the second time. And this second time is very different than the first time. The first time, I was like, I'm sober. This is so amazing. The sky is so beautiful. That was the first time. This time, I'm like, I feel everything. I am raged. I am fearful. I am, I have, I am curious. I have no idea what I'm doing. I, I feel everything intensely all the time.
0: So you performed for so long while using. Did performing feel different than sober?
1: Yeah. Yes. 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 It felt different. It felt very different. It's much more scary. Elaine Stritch has a great joke in her show where she finally gets sober. She's backstage getting ready to go on for some play. And one of her friends, uh, Ben Gazzara, good old Ben Gazzara, turns to her. They were in the same play as she's getting ready to go on stage. And he says, you want a belt before you go on? And She goes, no, no, Ben, I give it up. I'm sober. And he goes, my God, are you crazy? I mean, you're going out there alone? And that's, that's what it feels like. And that is what it feels like. And yeah, it feels like you're, you're on your own, kid.
0: Well, I started the conversations talking about your singing, though. You, you lived really hard with all like the drugs we're talking about. You lived on the street for a year. You've had some really scary complications from AIDS. Has all of that affected your singing voice at all? You know,
1: probably, but I'm so I have such a lack of training as far as as being a singer is concerned. Most all of my training is as an actor. I have never had a singing lesson. I don't really know what I'm doing. I just really love to sing, and it brings me. It also gets stuff out of me because when I sing, I just go and I don't think about it. So I really. I really don't know. I don't know. I don't warm up. I don't know how to.
0: Oh, my God. Wait, you're so you're one of those... Well, I'm going to say it, you're one of those freaks. I'm a freak. Because seeing you on stage, I think, oh, my God, that is a woman with masterful control of her instrument. <laughs> Honestly. Bless your heart. I don't have a clue as to what the
1: hell I'm doing. Not a, not a clue. No, not a clue. So I don't know. I have no idea. I'm doing a gig at Ravinia, which is a big thing in Chicago with Brian Stokes Mitchell. We're doing a concert, a Sondheim concert at Ravinia, And uh, I haven't sung. I mean, I was in Wicked, but that's not really singing. That's sort of like talk singing. I was just sort of like going, I'm saying words from my face. It's not like singing Sondheim is what I'm saying. And I haven't done that in a really long time, like months probably. And I have this big concert to do in like two months. And I call my accomplice and I said, I have to come over to your house and sing. I don't remember how it goes. I don't remember how it feels because I'm not a trained singer. I don't even know if I can do it anymore. So I have to practice it. But I feel like I, I like to do what I like to do. And it, it, I feel like when I'm telling the truth, which is not all the time, but when I'm telling the truth in the middle of a song, there is a dialogue between you and I.
0: You know, I've been jumping around in your timeline a bit, and I want to move forward to the TV show Transparent, which you co-starred in. And it unfortunately has to be said that the star of that show, Jeffrey Tambor, has had multiple allegations of sexual misconduct and inappropriate behavior, some of which you corroborate in the book. And I think that, for me, one of the unfortunate aspects is that the actions of one man has tarnished what should be a momentous legacy for a show. Transparent was a game-changer for trans storytelling in Hollywood, and I don't think we acknowledge that because of its association with Jeffrey Tambor. Just speaking personally, are you able to separate him out from the show and its legacy, or does that tarnish the entire experience for you?
1: I am able, finally, to be able to separate the two. I can do that easily. (sighs) Jeffrey's behavior is abominable, and was abominable, and Trace Lisette and Van Barnes, who uh, initiated these accusations, are absolutely right and correct, and I stand behind them, 110%. But the show, if you take it away from Jeffrey's shadow, is quite brilliant. And strangely conversely, his performance is exquisite. It's extraordinary. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, it's now considered transphobic, but, and that's the other problem with the show.
0: Well, I'm sorry, transphobic because we cast a a cis person in that role.
1: Because he's a cis, exactly, that's correct. Because he's a cis uh, man. And, you know, we say, well, you know, nowadays we would say, well, you should have said no. But, you know, everything is time specific.
0: It was different back then, yeah. Very,
1: and I feel like if you're going to watch Transparent, the thing to do is to have a conversation. You have a conversation about what representation means, even if it's to yourself, what it means, what it means now, what it meant back then, what is cis power. I can look, I mean, I haven't watched Transparent in years, but I can look at it and go, this changed the trajectory. You and I wouldn't be talking right now if it weren't for Transparent. It literally changed the trajectory of my career.
0: Your career, but also... The the history of trans representation in Hollywood, that show more or less made us fast forward.
1: I think that's right. And to be honest with you, I mean, I don't know that this is true, but I I think Pose would not have happened without Transparent. I really think that, the, you know, in trend, and we have to be really clear, Pose was very specifically about the trans experience. Transparent was not. Transparent was about the Pfeffermans. Correct. It was not about the trans people. It sort of parted this little, it opened the door like that much and Pose busted down the walls. But you'll notice, here's the thing. How many TV shows right now are running that are trans-centric, not that have trans people in them,
0: but trans, how many? I think zero. That's right. Not one. Not one. So, And then I would come back to you and say, how many shows you see where you see a trans person on screen, we could name many, how many where you could name two trans person on screen in the same scene? I think that list is like almost non-existent. I'm sure there's outliers, of course. But for me watching Transparent, I was like, oh my God, there's three or four trans people on screen. We've never seen this before.
1: And once Trace Lizette entered the picture, everything changed. It was just a game changer. We still should be filming that show. We should still be filming that show. It's heartbreaking.
0: When I first brought up Transparent in this interview, your face dropped. Is it uncomfortable to talk about? No,
1: no. Oh, God, no. No. It's sad. It makes me sad. It, it's 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 upsetting because, because, like I said, we should still be filming it. We really should still. Not that I want to go back. I don't. I have an amazing <laughs> career. I mean, if we were still filming Transparent, I wouldn't have been on Broadway. So I'm very grateful things worked out the way they did. But... It's sad. It makes me very sad. What I do when I talk about transparent is I go to so many places. I go to so many emotional places. And one of the great places for me, and this is where I like to live, is the fact that I met the greatest people in my life. With the exception of the women, trans women I met at the Baton. these people became my family. Catherine Hahn, Amy Landecker, Judith Light, the Duplasses, trace like, oh, our lady j these people this is not a joke are part of my family like we still talk we still see each other we, and joey and i are are you know like one person so a, a lot of stuff happens to me when this subject up. i have
0: one more question about that show is that okay yeah Okay, and it's because it involves a scene you were in. I think there's many ways Transparent was groundbreaking with how it dealt with HIV, with being trans, and one of those things that always stands out for me is the scene where you are naked and arguing with your boyfriend. You know, we don't see trans people in relationships, just in general, but here we have a naked trans person, and it's not about her being naked. We're not over-sexualizing her. Mm. And I just wonder, like, what was your reaction when you first, like, found out that that scene was gonna happen?
1: Well, it was my idea. <laughs> I walked, twist. Yeah, I know. I walked in uh, th- that season. The writers were very generous, and they, as as was Joey. And they asked us every season, what do you want to do? If you have any ideas, please come and tell us. That's what we want to know. And I wanted to be naked. But I didn't want to have sex. I didn't want somebody on top of me. I didn't want to make a bunch of faces. I didn't want to do any of that. I wasn't, I'm married, and I'm not particularly interested in doing sex scenes. This is not something I'm interested in doing. So I I walked in and I said, I'd like to be naked and they went, Oh, topless. And I went, no, no, I'd like to be naked. And everybody went, really? I said, yeah. I said, but I don't want to have sex. I don't want it to be a sex scene. And the writers all went, I, all right, how's that going to happen? So that part was the writer's genius and Joey's genius of going, let's just have her be naked. Like you would be naked with a partner. And that way when she rolls over or whatever she does, we're not involved in that. We're involved in the relationship. It was brilliant.
0: Because I think that's the first time people have seen like what a trans body can look like on screen, on their TVs. And, and there's another universe where it would've been really easy to make that like a joke or, you know, to, or do it like, like you said, a sex scene. But the fact that it's just this woman living her life and arguing with her boyfriend, it was just like so normalizing.
1: Yeah, it was pretty great. I was very excited. It was very difficult for me to shoot, much more difficult than I thought it was going to be. So I surrounded myself with a lot of trans women on set. I asked for that. I asked for very specific things. I asked for a closed set. I made sure that I had someone literally standing there with a robe. I mean, it was I had people taking care of me. So it was not easy to do, but I'm really glad we did it. And, and it was a group effort. It was an ensemble effort. Yeah.
0: Wow. Can I ask, you've dated all genders throughout your life. D- do you label yourself as bi? Somebody asked me that yesterday. Somebody just asked me that. I have a good reason for asking, though. Okay. I'll, t- I'll tell you my reason first. Great. I love it. Okay, my reason is that bi erasure is real, and I think it's important to shout it a bit louder when someone is bi if you do identify as that. Because I think oftentimes we can, like, we could have gone through this whole conversation and, like, never labeled your sexuality. And I kind of think to help combat bi erasure, if Alexander Billings is bi, I, like, kind of want the world to know.
1: I, I feel the same way I did, like, yesterday when they asked me, a student actually asked me this question, which is great. I love when my students talk to me this way. I feel like it's, it, the weird thing is it's never entered my head. It's never entered my, it's never entered any of my conversations. I've never thought about it. I wish I could just say yes or no. But the only thing I can tell you is if you and I were on a date and you were much older and that's really the only prerequisite, age. I would never date anybody as young as you or younger. I would only date people my own age. And that's been true since I've been 20. And it really doesn't matter who you are. I don't care what you have or what you don't have or what you were or what you're going to be. It doesn't matter
0: to me. And labeling it doesn't matter to you.
1: No, no. The, I mean, Chrisanne is going through her own gender identity things. And I'm just kind of like,
0: great. That's her wife for everybody listening.
1: Yes, yes. My wife and I, because I love her and I, I, I find her attractive and I find her a, to be a sexual being that I want to you know, be around. So I can't think of anybody, any type of person where I would go, Ugh, like, I can't. It doesn't make
0: any sense to me. Well, thank you for allowing me to ask that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I wish I had a better answer for you. I could just say, yes, but I don't know. I don't know. It just feels like bisexual to me feels like a very specific container of which I don't know much about. That's why I think I'm hesitating. But I bet if you gave me criteria, I could probably check a couple of boxes.
0: (laughs) Oh. Alex, we have to leave it there, but thank you so much for doing this.
1: You're welcome, my friend. Thank you for asking me.
0: Yeah, this is fantastic. And we've been talking so much about your singing. Let's go out on a song. And that is Alexandra Billings. Once again, her new memoir is called This Time For Me. This Time For Me is out now. And then if you enjoyed this interview with Alex or any of our previous ones, we have a tiny favor to ask. And that is if you can please take out your phone right now, take a screenshot of the podcast and post it to your Insta stories, your Twitter, any and all those. Things like that really are the biggest ways to help new people find our show, and it's very, very much appreciated. So if you do that, come tag us. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at JeffMasters1. The show's on there at LGBTQPod. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much to everyone who's doing that with their phones right now. We are brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with Glad. I'm Jeffrey Masters. I will see you next Tuesday. Bye.